Lord, may the meditations of our hearts together this morning and the words of my mouth be holy and pleasing to you. Amen. Years and years ago, when Christy and I were dating, our fun hobby that we did was rock climbing. I might have told this to a few people, but not many people. How many people here have rock climbed or done some kind of rock climb? I'm seeing some hands. Now, we were not the most intense bunch. I'm not trying to, like, to, to brag or anything like that. We, were, we mostly did indoor with lots of very cushiony things you could fall on. But there's lots of intense things you can go. You can learn to rappel in. You can do lead climbing. You can get outside the inside gym and get outdoors into the beautiful creation that we live in. So getting out and about. But then the sticks get to get higher. You have to be more confident in yourself, more confident in your ropes, more confident in your partners and training. And one of the techniques that I by no means have mastered is rappelling or belaying. That's not something I mastered. I'm not pretending to have done that. Is anyone here like really good at rappelling? Like if I threw you in the, I see a few hands. If I threw you in the middle wilderness, you would know how to get by. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I've realized as I've tried to do this, whether it's an automatic rappel thing or you're doing it with a partner, is you have to completely trust on the rope. You have to completely trust on the rope. Otherwise, Everything awkward is about to happen. You'll kind of waffle and just kind of sort of slowly fall awkwardly down. The, the, it's, it's a kind of, it really, if you've experienced it, you kind of feel kind of funny because you're supposed to lean completely back and then gently walk back. And if you don't completely trust it, you won't be able to get back down this, whatever kind of incline you're on. You must completely trust it. And it makes me think also of when I'm playing with my kids at home. Every day, at some point or another, my kids want to wrestle, and what they want to do currently is something called hero flying. They want to pretend to be heroes, leap off the couch, and have me grab them and do all kinds of acrobatics in the air for them to land safely. Of no help of their own, by the way. The way they do this is they just leap. If I did not catch them, they would really be hurt. (laughs) There's, you know, knees bashed in, all kinds of things, but they do this because they completely trust me. They completely trust me. There's not a doubt in their mind that I will grab them. Now, it's a little pressure on me because I have to catch them. Otherwise, bad things happen. But they completely trust me. And I think that is a lot of what's happening here in chapter, chapter 3 in Joshua. Do we completely trust God? Because that's what God's asking of these people. Do you completely trust me that even though he... You know what he's doing. You know what his promises are. You know what he said he will do in the end of times, throughout all things. What about the here and now, in this season that we find ourselves in? Do we completely trust him even though he hasn't actually told us how he's going to do everything? Do we completely trust him? You know, we live in a world that's consumed with a lot of doubt, a lot of skepticism, a lot of pride and self-reliance. I don't want to have to rely on something else. I like to be able to figure it out on my own. A lot of fear. But just as God has completely devoted himself to us, that we would find life and hope and healing, he's asking that we would devote ourselves to him. Joshua, and we're several chapters into this story, is an incredible book of, about a journey. It's a journey of a people who are shaped by God's promises, and they're actually having to trust in those promises if they're going to continue making it chapter to chapter to chapter. And we've been highlighting different promises. The first promise of the first chapter, which I preached on, was about strength and courage, God's presence, that he's going to be with you, and through his presence with you, he's going to give you strength to do things you never thought you would do. 
He would give you courage and boldness in the face of things that just seem impossible. He's inviting us to a way of rest in life that's completely different than the world. And last week, Wendy preached and talked about rescue. And this woman, Rahab, who believed that God, not even knowing that much about her, but believing and hearing these stories that, no, God's on the move. He's on the move towards rescue. And I want to align myself with the God of rescue. All these things are leading to this moment when God's people are actually entering the land. They've been away in the wilderness for 40 years, and now they're finally entering the land. But it's not easy, of course, as we're going to learn. The River Jordan is not just this normal, easy-to-cross river. It's flood season. It's overrunning. It's massive. How, how and why would they try to cross it now? And you also need to note, I would just remember, it's what's said at the beginning of the, of the it's, it's said in the first chapter. At the very end of the first chapter of Joshua, as God is giving this charge to the people, this is what they say in response. Because God said, you will take this land. I will give you strength and courage. And the people said this, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. They just made a blanket statement there. <laughs> they don't know what is going to be asked of them. They don't know what is going to be this challenge put in front of them. And yet still they did that. In a lot of ways, they think they might know how God is going to bring this. Maybe God's going to make it easy for them. If they can just get in the land, all the people will run away. That would be easy. The reality is much harder. They don't know how God is going to bring this about. And the way this whole chapter unfolds, and uh, I'm not going to lean on my own reading just to assume you've felt this, but if you read it verse by verse, if you read this over and again, what it wants you to feel is suspense. It wants you to feel the tension. What's happening here? Like, how is this going to come about? Which is hard when sometimes you feel like you know the story, that you're already thinking about the end. But just being in the midst of it, what is God going to do? Because like they are, we are in the midst of it. What is God going to do? In the first movement of this tension, this suspenseful storytelling of this crossing of the Jordan, I feel like what God is saying is consecrate. He's inviting the people to prepare for God to move in their hearts. Let me read a few of these verses really quick again, starting from verse 3. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests now involved carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. So they are going to go and follow the Ark of the Covenant. The priests are going to carry this Ark of the Covenant ahead of them. And this is what God says. Then you will know the way, which way to go, since you have not been here before. I could just say that over and over again, and it would be kind of stirring, I think, to me personally. That's how you will know the way to go, because you haven't been here before. It's true of a lot of us. A lot of us haven't been here before. Where do we go from here? And there's a couple questions that comes up for me when I look at this. They're told this to keep distance for about 2,000 cubits behind the ark, to not go near it. So a couple of my questions, because the first part of this is the fact that they're supposed to go to a camp and camp out for a few days, three days. So why three days? Like, what's the, what's the slow down rush of it all? I, some of these details in Joshua are very interesting to me, and I don't want to dwell on them so long, but why are they waiting three days? Well, I think it's building up the suspense. They know how all these people are so powerful in Canaan. They probably even know about the flood river in Jordan. It's like, okay, we're going, God, but how are we going to get across the, the river? Is there going to be a bridge or something? Like, how, how are we going to do this? Three days, building of suspense, testing their patience. 
testing their patience, and giving them a chance to become more aware of what's happening in their circumstances. The next thing, too, I want to highlight is the ark. The ark is really important in this chapter. The ark is mentioned 10 times and referenced even more than that. It, it's, it's at the center of what God is doing in this chapter. Whatever, if you're trying to figure out what's happening in this chapter, look at what the ark is and what that represents. I think that's a really big key. Because the, God, the ark represents God's presence in the midst of his people. And one way I just like to put it with you, it's, it's, it's humanity wrapped in divinity. It's made by normal everyday acacia wood, and you know, with gold on the inside and outside. But everything about the ark is not, it's not pointing to humanity, it's pointing to divinity. It's pointing to who God is, that he's dwelled, that the tablets that were given to Moses are captured and held in this ark. And that God said that he would dwell in the midst of his people, not limited by where the ark is and isn't but that he chooses to be with his people through it. That's good. Uh, So God, by the ark going ahead of the people, he's saying that God himself is leading. Joshua is not the one stepping into the water. The ark is. That God is going before this people, and they must walk with him and carry that with them. That's That's one of the things he wants us to see, that God himself leads. The other thing I want to just note is the 2,000 cubits thing. Cubits is something that gets mentioned all the time in Scripture. I don't want to, you know, a 2,000 cubits, it's close to, a, close to a kilometer. It's close to a kilometer distance. So they're far enough away where they can actually see everything happening. They can actually see everything happening, unfolding, because you can imagine if you stepped in the water and then later down the line, uh, something happened that caused the water to stop. You'd want to get some scope or perspective. What's happening here? Because the water was here, I swear. It was here. Um... So they're far enough away. So this is so they would know where to go, is what the passage emphasizes, but it's also so they can see exactly what God is doing. The big thing here in this section, and I'm focusing on verses 1 through 6 right now, if you're looking at, your script, at the Bible with me. 1 through 6, there is this big theme, and verse 5 highlights it, and it's consecrate. Consecrate yourselves. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecrate is not a word we use every day. <laughs> it's not a word we use every day, but I think it's a good word. You could, use, you could translate this in some versions that says sanctify. What I would love for you to have in your mind when you hear the word consecrate is to set yourself apart as holy. To set yourself apart as holy. The root of it actually is holy, kadash. That's what the Hebrew is, to make oneself clean through some washing and rituals, completely dedicating oneself, devoting oneself to God, consecrating oneself. It's language of worship. The ark, as part of this chapter, also cues us off. This is something worshipful happening. This is something worshipful happening you would expect to happen in a sanctuary or the temple, except it's outside. It's outside in front of a massive raging river. Worship is happening. It's also used to describe specific preparation God asks of people when he's about to reveal himself in a special way to consecrate yourself. When the Lord comes to his people, he's asking them to be ready. He's asking us to be ready. There's been all these opportunities before today, and there will be many more for us. Are we ready? Are we ready for God to move in this church, in our family, in our lives? Are we ready? 
These are outward acts that are mentioned to reflect an inward openness to God and his will. Are we inwardly open and living into that? Further instructions are given, but it's all because they've been given this cue that amazing things are going to happen. They don't quite know what yet, but amazing things are going to happen. And so Joshua, in verse 8, tells the priest to carry the Ark of the Covenant When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Now, if you can imagine yourself as a priest, you know you probably can see the river at this point. You're thinking, I'm going to stand in that. That shows no sign of yielding up. I'm going to stand in that. We have like some mighty strong warriors as part of our people. Why don't they carry the ark? They probably would do a much better job at flood waters. Why, why as a priest, if I'm a priest, why, why would God ask me of this? I'm, surely I'm going to just get knocked down and drown. Notice that it doesn't say how God is going to stop the water. He just says stand. Can you stand and not knowing what's going to happen? It's like what I've already said and I'll repeat again. Do you trust God even when you don't really know what's coming next? Do you trust him when you don't know what's coming next? Are you actually ready for this? All of this is preparation for God to move, and we have to prepare ourselves in a lot of ways because we don't know what's coming next. I'll reflect on this later, but it is part one. This is an essential invitation I see in this passage. What does it look like to consecrate your life, yourself, your family? How do you set yourself apart completely? Maybe you've done it before. Maybe you need to do it again. Next movement is going, I'm going to pick up from verse 10 on, 10 through 13. And I, what you see here is the people crossing with the assurance of God's power. You see them crossing with the assurance of God's power. Hear verse 10 with me, and this is where all the ites are. They need a termite club. Um, this is how you will know that the living God is among you. They don't quite know yet. They've been told to stand. But this is how you're going to know that and that he will certainly drive out. And then you have a list of all these peoples, the Canaanites, the Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, all of our favorite friends. And, um, and you know, this is, it's, it's list seven people. There's probably more people that live in Canaan. Sometimes Canaan gets used as an umbrella term for all, all the people. But it's trying to say this is, it has a symbolism of fullness. This is all the people. How, how is God going to drive all these people out? Because he's with you. And you are also going to see this incredible sign at work, which is also going to encourage you that God is with you. It emphasizes, some of the language used here I think is really powerful. Um, living God, the living God, the Lord of history is actually among you. God is actually among you. He, he's the same one who works, who intervenes, who comes, who saves, who rescues, who counsels his people. And he counsels them and counsels us in our unique circumstances and the unique challenges we all face. And then he calls attention again to the ark. Back to the ark. What is God doing? It says in verse 12, it says to choose 12 men from the tribe. So this is a representative of all the people. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of the earth, as soon as they set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and it will stand up in a heap. This river would normally be about 100 feet across, normally, and about 3 to 12 feet deep, which is a pretty big range. But that's 100 feet, 3 to 12 feet deep. That's the normal thing that would happen with the river. But it's flood season, so it would, it's probably not 100 feet wide. It's closer to a kilometer wide. 
and much, much deeper. It's, it's not an easy thing. I was, trying to, I, mean, I was trying to figure out how to compare it to the North Saskatchewan River, and I couldn't quite figure out the right way, but it's a massive river that you would not just dive into, let alone carrying an ark that is massive and requires several people to carry, or a whole group of people who are carrying things and carts and cattle. You can't do this. It wouldn't work. But God is asking them to cross with the assurance of his power. He's instructed them to cross. So can they take a step of faith not knowing what will happen? And all of a sudden when I say that and you see what's happening and unfolding, you know that it's not about the details as much. Sometimes we want to know all the details connected to a decision. I want want a very full pros and cons list. I want to do all the pros and all the cons. Who are good pros and cons people here? I see some pros and cons. Exactly. You do a good pros and cons list. You weigh it out. But it's not it's good to do that, but it's not about that. It's not about the how, but it's about the who. <laughs> who do you trust to go forward to whatever it is? And in reality, is we don't know. Cross with the assurance of God's power is what we see happening here. And then what he tells them is to stand firm. So it kind of builds to this moment. If you can just imagine all the people almost a kilometer away looking as they see the Ark of the Covenant gleaming in gold with the priest leading them. And they're standing off and they see this raging river. And you see, what, what type of witness is this for us if we see this beloved treasure to remind us of God's presence? What happens to it if it's out of our control? They don't get to control it because God is in control. And they watch and see this. And yet as soon, and I'm reading from verse 15, yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream flowing, it piled up in a heap a great distance away. Whenever this happens in Joshua, it's not the first time that this kind of incredible, miraculous thing will happen. And I hope it's not the last time that something like this happens in your life. When something incredible happens, Amazing happens in your life. I hope it reminds you of what God's done in your life. This whole thing happening here with the Jordan is supposed to immediately take us to the Red Sea. It's supposed to immediately take us to Moses holding up his staff in the parting of the Red Sea, except God is doing it again, but he's even being very clear. You don't need to have Moses at the center for the sea to part. Just me. That's all you need. You just need me. You just need me to be there with the faithfulness of people taking a step and trusting that God's actually going to not just save them and deliver them, but actually create a way because he's a way maker. God has done this before and he will do this again. The priests stand on dry ground. I want to go back to a question I asked a little bit ago, but it's worth asking again. Why cross here? Why cross here? Couldn't they just wait till it was not flood season? Or maybe there's a better crossing that was less narrow, would require less faith. And one of the, the commentators I read this week who was reflecting on this, it's, it's a man by the name of Dale Ralph Davis. He says this to this question. I'm not sure. But this is a marked tendency in his ways, God's ways. Yahweh delights to show his might in the face of our helplessness. Apparently so that we cannot help seeing that we contribute nothing to our own deliverances. God delights to show up when we are completely helpless. But it's in doing that that we realize, no, I I can't save myself from where I find myself. I can't rescue myself 
The other significant thing happening here, which you could just go right over our heads, is that the people actually enter the land. The moment that the people enter the land, the exodus is over. This whole massive journey that's been leading up, the exodus is over. And Israel begins to make this new land their home. The way this happens, why they cross here, when it happens, the way that God asked them to do this, is all so that God gives all the credit. God gets all the credit, all the praise, and he makes it clear that he alone is the one who saves. What would be strange um, for these people going forward in this book, or even in our lives, if you've ever experienced God's rescue, you've ever experienced God's love and mercy and grace, it would be strange to live some way that wouldn't live in response to it. This is a strange thing happening, this miraculous, unprecedented thing, but it doesn't change the fact that God's love and rescue is happening in this moment in this incredible and powerful way. And I believe all of us in some way have experienced that. And we have those touchstone moments you go back to and you look and you say, God really showed up. God was there. And just as God was there, he isn't going anywhere. And so when these things happen, it, it, for me, it calls to my mind and memory. is like, oh, no, God's done this before. This is, not, this is what God does. Somehow we're very forgetful, anesiatic people. We forget. We forget how God moves in the world. And it would be strange to live anywhere, anywhere else but to live in faithfulness to God. The main two threads of this passage in chapter 3 are, to, are, are words of consecration and crossing. Consecration, setting yourself apart as holy, preparing for God's work. And crossing, which is to take a step of faith, realizing that you don't know the outcome, or realizing that you have to trust God with each step of the way. Even they might not be what you would want or not guided by the same wisdom, by the same plan. A quote by Watchman Nee that I found really powerful thinking about consecration is this. Revelation is the first step to holiness. Revelation, encountering, seeing God. Revelation is the first step to holiness. And consecration is the second. A day must come in our lives as definite as the day of our conversion when we give up all right to ourselves and submit to the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. That was watching me. Both those things, to fully consecrate yourself, which is a new word. Maybe this will be a new word you could add to your vocabulary. Might, might turn some eyes when you use it. To fully consecrate yourself and to fully cross in faith. Those are things that you cannot do apart from Jesus. That he and he alone enables this kind of faith in our life. And in truth, it's because he's fully dedicated himself. He's truly, he's called, he's the one that's called us out of darkness into light. He's the one who's called us away from lives of death, death to embrace new, living, whole, complete life in him and away from practices of worship that destroy us from the inside out, that are completely hollow and empty. These things destroy us and lead us just wanting more and more. They will never satisfy. No, he, that's, that's, Jesus makes the way for this to happen. He goes to the cross to say, this is how you know that I am with you and will always be with you. It's what he tells his disciples as he ascends up into heaven. It matters, when I say this, that Jesus is a proven Savior. 
It matters that he's a proven savior, that he's a proven deliverer, healer, rescuer, king. Just as he was not overcome by the cross, when we step into the water with God, taking, taking our steps into the water, we are not overcome because the same God is with us. He is Lord of the earth and sustainer of life. So I hope that as you hear the call, you hear me, but I would pray you would hear it as God's call in your life. Consecrate. Consecrate your life. That you would see this as a setting yourself apart for God. It's his challenge. It's his invitation from your loving Savior. That he will not leave you. And he won't leave you not knowing. He'll lead you into life. He wants to set you apart. Hear that call to consecrate. And hear the call to cross. As the moment that you can trust God completely. Perhaps you've not done that yet. Or you found some really creative ways to get from that point of completely saying, God, I actually do want to lay this all before you. I'm okay with whatever you want to do with my life. Even if that doesn't look, even if that looks unsuccessful, even if that looks embarrassing, even if this looks hard, am I okay with God actually doing that in my life? Can I fully yield that? For some of you, it's it's about taking opportunities for relationships and community, being willing to step back in, trusting that God is going to be with you in that journey. For some of us, it's about work. It's about the jobs that we take. It's about the challenges we take on with our families and our kids. Do we actually trust the Lord enough to walk in this way with our families and with our spouses? Because there are high stakes, just like a raging river, but God's invitation isn't different than it is to the, for the Israelites. Will you step in? Will you watch and behold what I am doing? We have to spiritually prepare for this. We have to prepare for this to happen. We have to trust that God's going to work. And I go back to verse 5 where God just says, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things. For me personally, what I've been looking at with this word consecrate is that there are things like um, Caleb led us in prayer that I have to repent of. I look back at this past year in life and I realize there are things that I, I, I wish I was more loving. I wish I showed up with more grace. I wish I went out of my way to talk to this person or I did this or I didn't get so stressed out and anxious about this thing. There are countless things where I look and I said, a lot of these things are just a whole list of things of me having to realize I didn't actually trust God in those moments. And that would be the case for all of us. What do we need to lay before God and say, this is yours? And then to go into the summer in this moment of transition for yourself, family, church, all of it, and to say, I am not going into this next time without laying it before God. As we get ready for familiar things, new things, I would encourage all of us to not just dive in just like nothing happened, just like the year and a half didn't happen. We dive into the new and freedom of the moment but it's, we dive in with complete trust and faith in God. Maybe that was solid for you before. Maybe that's been challenged. Or maybe you are stronger in your walk with Jesus right now than you ever have been. Either way, consecrate yourself. I'm going to invite the band to come up to lead us in a response to worship. One of the things, just an image of people sitting in water with Jesus happens in the Gospels in Luke where Peter actually is with Jesus, hearing this teaching from Jesus. And Jesus tells him after a whole day of fishing, 
Cast your, your nets out into the deep water. Peter responds saying, no, I, I, we've been fishing all morning and haven't found anything. I'm not sure what good that would do. He says to do it. All of a sudden, before they know it, they can't even pull up this massive haul of fish. It's a story from Luke 5. They can't even pull it up. They can't even pull it up. And Peter comes to Jesus right after that moment, and he says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. So, and so were James and John and the sons of Zebedee and Simon's partners. They couldn't believe it. You know, a lot of, and what happens immediately after this is they follow God. They immediately leave everything and follow him. And I think this is what it looks like to consecrate and to cross. When you experience an incredible work of God, and I hope that you have, you do leave everything and follow him. It changes what you do. There are two questions I want to say, I want to speak and invite you to reflect on this week. And then I'm going to pray. Perhaps you want to go down, back down and, and write these down somewhere. But these are questions that guided my heart all this week. And it is, what is God calling you that requires you to trust him each step of the way? What is God calling you that requires you to trust him each step of the way? And this is the second question. What might happen if you actually made God the center of your life? For this week, this month, this summer? What might happen? Pray with me. Lord of the earth and of history, you know the questions, emotions, and thoughts of our hearts. You know the ways that we have been on this journey with you, trusting you, and you know the ways in our hearts that we haven't. And that there are parts of us that we still cling to, not wanting to let go of, whether it's control or running away in fear. And I pray, Lord, that we just sense your spirit saying, come to me. Join me in the waters. Come down to the river to pray. Show us the good way, Lord. And I just pray in our hearts you would help us to let go of the things that we don't need to be holding on to and to take steps of obedience into what you have for us, to take steps of trust and faith, even when they are scary and overwhelming. And that you would lead us to full life and wholeness. It's the promise bound up in the land. It's the promise you have for us, full and complete rest in life. Please lead us into this, knowing our needs, knowing our struggles, Lord. Help us to trust you not knowing the answers because you are the God who's with us and will never lead us. Amen.